We've been talking about uh, oxidation and, and reduction, and today we're going to talk about a very special kind of oxidation by uh, iodic acid, uh, periodate that is to say, uh, uh, periodate cleavage. Carbonyl with an alcohol then, let's try that. A carbonyl with two alcohol molecules. Uh, so the, what? Chrom the chromium, which is double bonded to three oxygens, and then... Don't think about the chromium, just for the terms of the analog, just think of, think of, suppose that was a carbonyl group instead of I double bondo, suppose it was C double bondo. What reaction do you get? Yeah, Leon? Pardon me? Fischer esterification. I, I couldn't hear. Fischer uh, Not a sterification. You, you could imagine a sterification of an acid with an ester, but I said, not a, suppose it's not a, suppose it were a carbonyl group, C double bondo, no OH on the group up at top. What reaction do you get between a Ketone, yeah, Matt? A ketal, right? So you get a reaction that's just like that, a ketal forms, right? And now we have a thing that's a little bit like ozone, okay? Because this sort of ketal can unzip, right? That's what reminds you a little bit of ozone, that kind of thing, okay? So it can come apart that way, right? And notice that's what, what's happened is that the diol has become two carbonyls. And of course, that's an oxidation. The iodine started in oxidation state seven, right? Seven bonds to oxygen, and it ended in five, right? So the iodine is reduced, and at the same time, the carbon is oxidized. It's plus one here, and it's plus two over here, right? And two of them get oxidized, two carbons get oxidized. Okay, now, uh, this might remind you of, of this reaction where you get two carbonyls. And what, uh, what reaction is that? What reagent will do that? That's ozone, right? What reagent does it? Ozone. So it's nice to think about when you have a certain functional group you want to get, what reaction will lead to it. So there's one that will lead to that. We could also think what reaction would come back from two ketones to give a diol with a carbon-carbon bond in between. That's a more exotic reaction. Does anybody remember that one? That's the pinnacle reduction, right, that we talked about, where metals give electrons to the ketones, the radicals couple, and then you, you have two O minuses that get hydrogens on them. So that's the pinnacle reduction that we mentioned. And then you might wonder if there's a reaction that does that, right? And we'll see an indirect version of that later in this lecture. That's the Wittig reaction, which is familiar, or it involves the Wittig reaction, which is uh, familiar to you from lab. So periodic acid cleavage of carbohydrates is a diagnostic tool. This is a useful reaction, and actually used to prepare compounds, but it also was historically important in finding out the ring size of, uh, of sugars that we talked about earlier as a problem. And remember, nowadays you do that kind of thing by NMR, but in the early days you had to do chemical transformations to known compounds in order to figure out what something was, right? So if you have a diol, as we just showed, you could react it with periodic acid and get two aldehydes. In particular for this one, formaldehyde, okay? So remember what, what sugars are, are a bunch of carbons in a row. They're carbohydrates. So it's carbon, hydrate, OHH, and then the carbons linked together. And one end is CH2OH typically, and the other end is an aldehyde. Or the carbonyl could be other positions down the chain. 
Okay, but how do you figure out what they are? Okay, suppose you had three in a row and did periotic acid. Okay, so you, you react with one of them and get the formaldehyde out from the end. But from the bottom part there, you get another aldehyde and OH. And that reacts again with periotic acid. Now, why? Because, remember, it, the aldehydes form hydrates. So that's their equivalent in water to alcohols. So now we have a diol again, and periotic acid oxidizes and cleaves such diols. Right? So from this reaction, then, you get two formaldehyde molecules, and the one in the middle, which had only one hydrogen on the carbon, gives formic acid. Okay? So formaldehyde arises from the primary alcohols at the end of the chain, and formic acid from the ones in the middle of the chain that have just an H on them. And incidentally, I've taken these slides from lectures given in the course last year by Professor Ziegler, because he had nicely animated them already. Okay. Uh, so here's that reaction we just talked about. Now, suppose we had an aldehyde at the end of the chain and we did this, right? Now, the, the one, now the one, not only the one in the middle of the chain has only one H on it, but the one at the top has only one H. So from that one, you'd get a formaldehyde and two formic acids. Right? Or if the carbonyl were in the middle of the chain, you're going to get, two for, uh, you're going to get formaldehyde and the, and the uh, acid in the middle, but that acid in the middle itself can hydrate and, and, and be oxidized and give CO2. So from this one we get two uh, aldehyde, two formaldehydes and a CO2 molecule. Right? So now we could go down and see what groups where that R includes an adjacent H, right? Uh, and what, which products you'd get from them, formaldehyde, formic acid, and carbon dioxide. So that just summarizes what we just looked at. Now, suppose you had glucose, right? Now the top would give formic acid, the next one would be formic acid, formic acid, formic acid, formic acid, and at the bottom would be formaldehyde because there were two H's on it, right? If you had mannitol, a reduced form related to glucose, then the top would be formaldehyde, two H's, then acid, 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 and at the bottom would be formaldehyde. So you see the, the ratio of these various well-known products you get out tell you something about what the structure of the, of the uh, sugar was. Or if you had fructose, which has a ketone in it, you'd get formaldehyde in the top, CO2 now from the one that has no hydrogens at all, acid, 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 uh, formaldehyde. And you can also apply it to the question of the ketals that are formed when you form a ring. So remember we spoke before about this ketal being a protecting group, both for the aldehyde that was formerly here, and that's its oxygen, and for the alcohol that was here. Okay? Now, we talked about the problem of determining the ring size. Think what would happen with this with HiO4. So it would cleave those two bonds where there are adjacent OHs, right, vicinal. Those are the only places where there are adjacent OHs. So we give formic acid, there was one H on that central carbon, and aldehydes on the end. And now if you treated that with acid and heat, then you'd open up the, the ketal, right? Ketals can be opened by acid. Incidentally, uh, people don't typically notice the necessity for heat in this, but it must require heat because if you can get that product, which hasn't opened the ketal, in the first reaction, which is done at room temperature for a day, 
periotic acid is a strong acid, right? So here's water, and it's done in water. So it's water with an acid catalysis. You'd think it would take the ketal apart. But in fact, taking the ketal apart requires some heat. So that's done in the second step. And then you, uh, you get the, uh, the uh, aldehyde taken apart. So the pieces you get are from the piece up here, uh, you get uh, OH, OH, and aldehyde. So you get deglyceraldehyde. Uh, from the piece over here, you get aldehyde and aldehyde again. And finally, of course, there's methanol that came along because it was a, because it was a, 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 a ketal involving that alcohol. So by telling what the products are, you can tell what the ring size was. Now here's a problem for you to think about. Suppose you can imagine these ketals being formed with other, instead of this, instead of this OH being the one that's involved to make a six-membered ring, it could have been this OH and made a five-membered ring, or in principle, this one that made a four, or that one that made a seven-membered ring. I'd like you to make a table that shows what the products would have been from periotic oxidation of those others to see whether, in fact, you can prove what the ring size was by what products come out from this. This, was, this uh, reaction was, was uh, developed in 1928 and applied for that purpose, that analytical purpose. Okay, so that's oxidation. Now we're going to talk about a little bit of, uh, of reduction and in particular about making, uh, about synthesizing alcohols and the idea of retrosynthesis a little bit, which is uh, you look at the product, usually it's a product you want to have and you're trying to figure out what starting materials and reagents would have given it. So really you're working backwards rather than forwards in a synthesis. So analyzing such problems is called retrosynthesis and we'll engage in a little bit of this here uh, using a problem that, that uh, is, occurs in the Jones textbook. Okay, so here's an alcohol we want to get. We want to put R on, a, on an alcohol that already has two methyls, right? Now we can start with acetone, they're the two methyls, and now we have to put the R on. Now what kind of R do we need in order to attack a carbonyl? What will attack a carbonyl to make a carbon-carbon bond for R? What form of R will we use? For example, could you use an alkyl halide, RCl? Would that be something that would react in order to give this product? What, what is it that will react with a carbonyl? What makes a carbonyl reactive? Roy? Uh, you need a nucleophile. You need a nucleophile. So you need a carbon that has a high homo on it. Can you think of any such things? Where do you get a high homo on a carbon? From a Grignard reaction, where, or an alkyl lithium, something where R is attached to a metal ion. So it'll be R minus. Okay, so you have R with a metal, uh, like a, a Grignard reagent or an alkyl lithium, right? You do this reaction. Then, of course, you can, uh, th those electrons can be used to form a bond to the metal and you get that intermediate. And in fact, as we've already discussed, it's not so obvious what the order of those additions are, the R adding to carbon and the metal adding to oxygen. It could be either first or, in fact, probably both at the same time. Uh, so at anyhow, we can, we can make that new carbon-carbon bond and then uh, treat the salt, the O minus M plus with H plus and get the alcohol. So there's a simple synthesis. Now, suppose we wanted to put an H on instead of an R. What form of H do we need? 
Can we do this with an acid, for example, H plus? Is that going to be a good idea? Megan, what, what type of reagent, what kind of H would attack a carbonyl? What makes the carbonyl reactive? The low lumo. Low lumo. So you need an H with a high homo. How about a proton? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, protons have no electrons at all. So what form of H do you need? H minus. H minus. Where are you going to get H minus? Where did you get R minus? Uh, from R metal. R metal. So what do we need now? H metal. H metal. Okay. So this is going to be a hydride reduction. Okay. So we have H with a metal doing exactly the same thing we showed above, except it's H minus instead of R minus doing the trick. And we get it from something like H attached to aluminum with a minus charge on the aluminum, which means it's really going to be a high homo. Or H attached to boron with a minus charge on it. So those reagents are lithium aluminum hydride, sodium borohydride, which can reduce uh, an alcohol to put the H on there. Okay, and we also talked about the biological equivalent of these hydride donors, which is uh, NADH, where the unshared pair on the nitrogen can get into the act, forming an aromatic system and losing H minus, which can go on to the carbonyl uh, group. Okay, so we have uh, R minus or H minus as ways to attack carbonyl groups. Now let's look a little bit at the synthetic versatility of Grignard reagents. So here's a problem to suggest high yield syntheses where the carbons come only from alcohols with no more than three carbons. And, but you can use any other reagent. Now these are very artificial. These are not a problem you'd be faced with in the laboratory because almost all, m many of these you could buy. Not all of them, but many of them you could buy cheaper than you could make them, right? But in a way of thinking about how you do syntheses in an elementary way, this is a good exercise. And it's, uh, as I've mentioned here, you can find that problem in, in, uh, in uh, the Jones textbook. So let's think first about the, the first molecule in this list. Now, what's the, what problem do we face in making this from alcohols with no more than three carbons? There are four carbons in it. So we've got to make a carbon-carbon bond somehow. So uh, let's think about what carbon-carbon bonds we might make. We could make the first carbon-carbon bond nearest the OH, or the next one, or the next one, right? There are three that we could make, and let's see how we would go about that. Okay, first let's try to make the one adjacent to the H. So we need to have two carbons that will react with one another, one a high homo, the other the low lumo, that will establish that bond, okay? So we need a nucleophile, a high homo, and an electrophile, the low lumo. So what will the nucleophile be? Anybody got an idea? It could be either the piece on the left or the piece on the right. If, if, the, nucleophile, if the electrophile were the piece on the left, the three carbon, what kind, of, what kind of molecule would you use if it were three carbons? and you want it to be attacked by a high homo. Right, a halide would do it, right? The, low, the sigma star of an alkyl halide would do that. Okay, now suppose you wanted it to be the high homo, then what would you do? Megan, you just told us about that. Suppose you wanted R to be a high homo. You'd use a metal, an alkyl metal, okay. Now, how about the electrophile on the right? Uh, Here's a great example of a, use the low lumo of carbonyl. So now what we want on the, on the left 
is the high homo. We want the alkyl metal. But we, can, but we can only start from alcohols. In fact, we can't even start with this because that's a carbon that goes into the product. We have to start from an alcohol. So how are we going to make that from an alcohol? How is it related to an alcohol, the H, which has an H on the carbon? So we have H on the carbon, H on here. That would be an alcohol, methanol. What kind of reagent do we need to get from the alcohol to this? It's an oxidation? Is it a reduction? Is it neither? We have to remove two hydrogens. It's an oxidation. There's a problem, though, because the oxidizing agents that oxidize alcohols also uh, react with aldehydes if you have any water there. Water will add, make the aldehyde into a diol, right? And then that will react. That will get oxidized by the reagent. How do you avoid that? We talked about this last time. You don't have any water there, right? So we talked about that last time, pyridinium chlorochromate done in methylene chloride solvent, so there's no water there, can do that trick. So we have the electrophile, now we need the nucleophile. We need a C3 group with a metal on it, but we can only start with an alcohol. So if we had normal propyl Grignard reagent, that would do the trick. Where do you get a Grignard reagent from? R-M-G-B-R, what's the starting material? Okay, so you guys need to go through this to get a little drill under your belts, okay? You get, you get Grignard reagents from alkyl halides, okay? So we could get it from, we could get R-M-G-B-R from magnesium and alkyl, and alkyl bromide, but where do we get the alkyl bromide? We can only, the, the rules of the game have the starting with alcohol. Yeah, Amy? PBR3. PBR3 on the alcohol, right. So we got it. Okay, so we can make that first one. Now how about the second one? Now we need, uh, we need an electrophile and a nucleophile. The electrophile now on the left could be the ethyl magnesium bromide, just two carbons, and we would make it the same way here, uh, starting with ethanol instead of propanol. So that one's okay. Now what will the group on the right be? We want to be able to attack this carbon and end up with OH on the adjacent carbon, right? Now you haven't done a lot of, of problems like this, but you need to think them through. And whatever textbook you're using, you'll find problems of this sort. So try some of them. But we talked about such a reaction, which is an epoxide. Remember, the strained rings can be attacked by a nucleophile to open here, right? But we, to, to, to form this ring where you attack this carbon and the O comes away as a leaving group protonated. Now, uh, where do we get that from? Where does an epoxide come from? We have to start with an alcohol. Any reactions that give epoxides? They come by adding oxygen to an alkene. Okay. Anybody remember the reagent that'll add an oxygen? What? Osmium something? Say again. Osmium? Uh, no, the, the, the osmium tetroxide takes an alkene and puts two O's on it, right? That'll put two O's. We want to just put one O in the middle. And you'll kick yourself when I, oh yeah, Chris. HCl, I think we do it, but you need something else. You can, you can add Cl and OH and then remove HCl. That was one way of doing it. There's another way where you do it in one step. 
MCPBA, metachloroperbenzoic acid. Remember that cyclic butterfly mechanism that transferred the oxygen from the peroxy acid? Okay, so we got that. But now we need the alkene, but we only have available alcohols. But that's a trivial one, just dehydrate an alcohol and you, or, or dehydrate an alkyl bromide, right? So you treat it with strong base and remove HBr and you got the thing. Okay, so we've got that. We can do that one. Uh, with heat and NaOH, okay? Now, how about the bottom one? That one is quite a problem. The problem is that uh, you could have methyl Grignard, but what are you going to attack? Because if you had a four-membered ring here with oxygen, it wouldn't, it wouldn't open. It's not strained like the three-membered ring would be. And you, if you try to make the nucleophile be on the left, that top right carbon being an anion, and this one being, say, formaldehyde, then you have the problem that you have two OH, you get an OH here, right? And that's a problem because you have to get rid of just one of the two OHs. Or, uh, or you would have to have a Grignard reagent or something like here, and that would react with its own H. Now, you could imagine complicated schemes where you use protecting groups and stuff like that. So it's conceivable, but it's hard work because this is not a particularly good carbon to be, to be reactive. The, you could have, if, so it's not in an activated position. This one was in a position where it could have been attached to that oxygen. This one was in a position that was a carbonyl. But this one has no special virtues that makes it reactive. So, so that one is a tough one to make. Okay, now let's think about the second one. Okay, now we, uh, let's try to make that bond, for example, right? Now we need a nucleophile and electrophile. Does anybody have an idea what the low LUMO is that could be attacked in order to make that red bond? Yeet, you have an idea? We want to make this carbon-carbon bond, and one of the two carbons has to be a high HOMO, and the other an unusually low LUMO. And notice, incidentally, that this one that's need, that, could, that needs to be one of them is, has an oxygen next door. Carbon double bond with O. Carbon double bond with O, right? So then what would you use on the right? You need an nucleophile, so um, RCL. RCL is, is like R plus, right? You want R minus. You want a high homo, not the low lumo, not sigma star. And what would you use? R metal. Oh, it's a metal, right. Okay, so we need a nucleophile and electrophile. We use the three carbons on the right, right, as a, as a Grignard reagent. And now we need that aldehyde, right? That four carbon aldehyde. We can only start with three carbon things. So we can't oxidize one of the things they give us and make that aldehyde. How are we gonna make that four carbon aldehyde? Any ideas? You don't have to look far. Linda, do you have an idea? You need a four carbons that terminate in oxygen, double bond O. And you can only start with three carbons. Can you think of any way of making four carbons when you start with, with three or less? That was the first problem. Right? So you've already made this. Can you think of any way of making the aldehyde? How do you go from the alcohol to the aldehyde? What do you need to do? You need to remove two H's. It's an oxidation reaction. So think only of oxidizing agents. Can you think of any oxidizing agent that changes an alcohol to an aldehyde? 
Sebastian? BR2. Uh, BR2 can do it, right? But you're going to have problems, depending on how you do it, of overoxidation. The aldehydes can go on to acids. PCC, the same one we used on the last slide. So you treat that one as PCC, and in the uh, methylene chloride solvent, you got that aldehyde. So we've solved the second one, PCC and methylene chloride. Now, so the next one that they suggest you try to make is this one. Now, suppose you wanted to make that bond. Can you think of any way of doing it? Ellen? What's going to be the nucleophile? Yeah, which, what's the R going to be? Is it on the right or the left, the one we're going to, it's going to be the, the R metal that we're going to deal with. Are we, is it going to be this carbon or this carbon? The bottom right or the top left carbon? What's the top left carbon going to be in order to make that bond? Amy? It'll be a... Uh, another, like, acetobondo. Acetobondo. This, when we see the O next to the carbon, we think aldehyde. Is, that's, so that's going to be the LUMO that gets attacked. And the HOMO, Ellen? The one on the right is going to be a Grignard. But this time, instead of N-propyl, it's isopropyl. And this is the aldehyde we need. Any way of getting that aldehyde, Ellen? The, yeah, that's the same way. It's the same one above, right? So we got that one. Okay, now how about this one? Any ideas for that? So let's make that bond. Okay. So what gets attacked on the left? Amy, can you help us again? Um, well, it would be, isn't it the top or the second one? How many carbons on the left? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. We can only start with three carbon alcohols. So could you make the second? The second product has the seven with, a, with an alcohol in the middle. So what do you do? You need a ketone in the middle. You've made the alcohol, you need the ketone. So you have to oxidize it. So you could use the same reagent again, but you don't need to worry because it's a ketone this time, so you're not so worried about overoxidation. So you could use one of those chromate things that we talked about or, or bromine or anything. And on the right, it's just the n-propyl again. We've already made that. Okay, so we got that one made. What about if we wanted to make the next bond, the, the vertical bond, instead? Oh, I didn't show it here. Well, what if, what if we needed to make the vertical bond? It's the same thing, right? The thing's symmetrical. It has three, ethyl, three propyl groups on there. Okay, so here's another one. How are we going to make this one? Well, we could make that bond. Anybody see how to do that? Mary? Um, we're gonna what are we going to use on the right? We're going to use the same reagents. Right, the, the same one here. Yeah. I, I, the same one is here, isopropyl. Yeah. Okay, and what's on the left? The, uh, we're going to oxidize the oxygen. Right, it's going to be the same one as the yeah, bottom. Yeah, and then we're going to right? that seven carbon one. So we got that one. And now finally, uh, how about if we wanted to make that one instead? Then what would the Grignard reagent be? It would be n-propyl instead of isopropyl. And what would the ketone be? It would be this. And where would we get that? By oxidizing this one, right? 
Okay, and finally this one. Now we could imagine making this bond, or making this bond, or making this bond. And we have the means to do all these things now. But one wonders, is there a preferred order? Is one way of doing this better than the others? Right? And in this case, I suspect that they're all about the same. Uh, it might come down to what's cheap and available and so on, which alcohols are cheaper. Okay, and in fact, of course, you would never do this because simple things like this, you, would, you wouldn't start from the alcohol. You'd buy the bromide or something like that. But when you talk about versatility of Grignard reagents, there are other things they can do too. For example, if you try to make the diisopropyl methyl version of the carbonyl here, right, to make this one, you find that you can, that you do first make the salt, then treat it with acid, you get that alcohol, and it's 95% yield. Great. Now suppose you wanted to use T-butyl instead of methyl, right? So you want to get that one. So you try that reaction, and you get 0% yield of that. The product is this. So what was it that added to the carbonyl? It wasn't the T-butyl anion. What anion was it? What did the addition? It was hydride. But where did the hydride come from? Okay. So it was a reduction by H minus, or the equivalent of H minus, right? What you had was the T-butyl Grignard. Now what problem did T-butyl Grignard have in trying to form this alcohol? Yeah, Cassie? It's sterically, it's sterically hindered. The carbon can't get close to the carbon. But a hydrogen can get close to the carbon, right? That beta hydrogen can get close to the carbon. So now we can do this, right? And you see that the, that, that the, the carbon part that was T-butyl loses magnesium and loses H to become the alkene. And the, and the other product then is that 65% yield alcohol. And this reminds you, this hydrogen transfer from T-butyl, although it's happening here in the context of an anion, it reminds you of two T-butyl radicals having trouble forming the carbon-carbon bond and transferring a hydrogen atom instead for the same reason. Okay, to avoid steric hindrance. Okay, now, uh, if you use T-butyl CH2 magnesium bromide, then uh, you don't have to worry about this hydride transfer because it has CH2 in this position and three methyls attached to that carbon. There is no hydrogen in the beta position. So it looks like we're home free here. But you only get a 4% yield of the Grignard right, because it's still sterically hindered. What you get instead is reduction of the, of the, uh, of the uh, or, or protonation, pardon me, of the T-butyl, of the, uh, of the uh, neopental group, right? So remember that the ketone itself has alpha hydrogens, so you can form enolates, you can give up a proton from those. So this, this thing, which is a nucleophile, is also a strong base and can take that off and you get that one. Uh, uh, enolate plus the enolate, which lost the proton, but then when you work it up with acid, you protonate it again. So the ketone gets recovered at 90% of it, and the, and, and the, uh, your uh, carefully made Grignard reagent just becomes a hydrocarbon. No use there. 
Okay, so those are other things that can happen with Grignard reagents. And that same thing, incidentally, can happen here because this one also, this, the alpha hydrogen was present here, and this one was a strong base, and in fact, 35% of that one was that plus the uh, starting ketone after you put the proton back on, okay? Uh, now, uh, this, uh, if you try to make this bond, as we just, uh, you could make it, uh, 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 with notice the difference this time is that it's isopropyl instead of t-butyl group here, right? So you can try doing this, right? Uh, so that has an H-beta and steric hindrance, so there's the risk that it would give reduction, right? Uh, but if you started with that ketone and added methylgrignar, then the methyl doesn't have any hydrogen beta that it could give in reduction. So now you get a good yield of the product that you wanted. So, there, so sometimes it's helpful to, to choose one of the bonds to make. So in making this, in trying to make this alcohol, the thing you get when you protonate here, you could make this bond or this bond or this bond. But the bonds to methyl are much more practical to make than the bond to the CH2 because of the risk of reduction. Okay, now the Wittig reaction we can zoom through because you all know that from lab. I don't remember what base you used to make the Wittig reagent. Do you remember? Sodium, Sodium what? Hydroxide. Hydroxide. So that so you had you didn't have such a simple Wittig uh, reagent as this one. Uh, notice that here you make the reagent by reacting with bromide, just like nitrogen would do an SN2 reaction. Now you have that cation, and you treat it in this case with a very strong base, butyl lithium. Right, so a carbon anion. What's the pH of a carbon-hydrogen bond? Typically, just a, like butane losing a proton. Order of 50, right? Very weak acid. So the butyl lithium is a very strong base, okay, and pulls that proton off the CH2. Now, in this case, uh, the pKa is about 30 of that of the CH3 group to lose a proton, right? You're never going to get that off with hydroxide, right? Uh, but you can do it in this, in this case there are, uh, with a stronger base. But what is it that you couldn't do this if, if instead of phosphorus you had nitrogen? Now, what's good about forming this anion? Why is that anion a reasonable one to try to make where you don't pull hydrogens off carbons willy-nilly, not off normal hydrocarbons? What does the neighboring phosphorus have to do with it? How does it make it easy to form the anion? Well, the phosphorus is a cation. It's easy to form an anion near the cation. You could do that with nitrogen. It could be an N plus, the next neighbor up in the periodic table, right? But phosphorus is even better, right? Because when you get that anion to be stabilized, phosphorus down in the next row of the periodic table has vacant d orbitals that are able to stabilize that electron. So it's especially acidic, but not so acidic that you're going to pull it off with OH minus. Right, so you could draw a resonance structure where you have a double bond, where not only the phosphorus is given electrons to the carbon in making the bond, but the, uh, but the uh, carbon is given electrons back to the phosphorus through this d orbital interaction. Anyhow, you have this so-called ilid, and then it can act as a nucleophile with a carbonyl, and now the, the, the oxygen can add to the phosphorus, which can form five bonds because it has extra valence orbitals, these d orbitals, right? So you get the four-membered ring. 
but that very uh, easily unzips uh, because the PO double bond is unusually stable. The NO bond of a, of a trivalent nitrogen that then adds oxygen is only 70 kilocalories per mole, but the phosphorus version is 100 kilocalories per mole because of those d orbitals making it especially stable. Okay, so you can get uh, that triphenylphosphine oxide and the alkene, and as you know, what, this, what the Wittig reaction results in is replacing double bond O by double bond CH2, or in other cases, double bond C something else, depending on what you started with up here. Okay, and I say directly, because there are other ways of going round about to do this rather than to do it directly. For example, you could add a methyl Grignar to this ketone to make the alcohol, treat that with acid, lose the water to make the primary cation, and it could then lose a proton. And that would replace, here's, here's where our CH2 is coming from, right? And then we lose the H from the CH3 to get that. So that replaces the double bond O with double bond CH2. The same thing the Wittig reaction would do, except that's not the major product. It's a minor product. What's the other product? The other product is losing a different alpha hydrogen, right? One of those. That's the major product. Why? It's a more stable alkene, more highly substituted, right? So, so, uh, uh, so you can see the advantage of the Wittig reaction, which directly gives the replacement of double bond O by double bond CH2 in this case, or double bond CHR or double bond CR2. Now, uh, I was going to say a little bit about green chemistry in, in connection with some of these reactions we're talking about. So pharmaceuticals are a big chemical industry nowadays. A hundred years ago, it would still have been dye industry right, and then petroleum, pharmaceuticals, plastics. But now pharmaceuticals uh, generate only 0.2% of the chemical industry's product measured by mass, but 25% of its value by, in money, right? Which means that it's worth doing a lot of work to, on those, to do a lot of reactions in order to get these pharmaceuticals. There's a lot of value added, right? But in the process of doing all these manipulations, the pharmaceutical industry generates more than 50% of the chemical waste, right? So the idea of green chemistry is to find new ways of doing things that won't generate so much waste or will be safer, for example. Okay, so there was a, there, in the, there's a journal called Green Chemistry, and in 2000, they published a paper called Key Green Chemistry Research Areas, a perspective from pharmaceutical manufacturers. So representative of, representatives of the biggest pharmaceutical companies, AstraZeneca, uh, GlaxoSmithKline, Lilly, Pfizer, Merck, Sharing Plow, which is now part of Merck, uh, got together to talk about what they saw as the places where you could make advances to make chemistry uh, more friendly to the environment and to the people practicing it. Uh, and uh, obviously from the, from the perspective of, of, uh, of the pharmaceutical industry, right? So this is gazing in a crystal ball, right? And there's nothing as hard to predict as the future, right? But at least these are their ideas and they're people that have a great practical interest in it, not only in the sense of their things they want to happen, but they're willing to give money to people 
to try to help make it happen, to do research projects, to try to develop new ways of doing it. So they were trying to decide what they would most like to have. And it, it, so it involved frequency of use. If there's a reaction you hardly ever use, you don't want to spend a lot of trouble on that one. But if there's something that you use all the time that you could make better, then that's important. So frequency of use, how much volume is involved of the, of the stuff. If it's only a milligram, who cares? But if it's tons, that's a big deal. And of course, safety is another one. So one of the top priorities is solvents because that's what they use the most of. So, and, and something that wouldn't occur to the outsider probably is a very important thing is to clean the, they have these big reaction vessels and they have to clean them so that stuff that's left over from the previous reaction doesn't get into some other drug. So they have to be scrupulously cleaned. And, and two-thirds of the solvent they use is used in cleaning the reactors to make sure that they're, they're clean. But there might be other ways of doing it. For example, use water and, and an oxidizing agent like hydrogen peroxide maybe to do it. So anyhow, they're interested in, in that as one of the big uh, uh, steps they could take. Or replacements for what are called uh, aprotic solvents. So these are organic solvents. They'll dissolve organic compounds but they also typically dissolve salts. So you can have salts react with organic compounds in these solvents. So ones like NMP there on the left, N-methylpyrrolidine or dimethylacetamide or dimethylformamid are very heavily used solvents because you can mix organic and, and salt reagents in them, right? But the problem is that they're, that they're very difficult because they're miscible with water they're very hard to get out of the water at the end of the, uh, at the, end of the day, right? So that they're worried about polluting water uh, streams. So they would like to get replacements for that. Now you could wish for anything. You could wish for $2 billion. I'd like to have $2 billion now. I'm willing to split it with all of you guys. That doesn't mean it's gonna happen, right? And so you can see a real problem with this. The reason these solvents are good is because they're organic and they're miscible with water. But the miscibility with water is what makes them bad because it's hard to get out of the water again. So uh, I don't know what progress has been made on this, but anyhow, it's something that they would really like. But then they thought of 13 processes, that is not just solvents, but actual reactions that need improving, and they thought ones that they already use heavily. And 14, they suggested new processes that there isn't a good way to do now, but would really be handy if you, if you could do them. And then they voted. So there were uh, six companies represented doing the voting, and each of them could, could cast five votes to choose among the 13 processes that need improving and another five votes among the 14 processes that they would like to have available. So this is, this is the perspective from the people who really do it about what would be useful to do. So current processes that need reviewing, all six of them voted that a, a way of doing, of forming amids, avoiding poor atom economy reagents. Now what that means is, uh, you're just trying to put this nitrogen onto a carboxylic acid to make an amid. But if you use other reagents that have an enormous number of atoms in it, then necessarily you're gonna have an enormous amount of waste generated, right? But if you could do it with atom economy, so you have a minimum number of atoms going in in order to you know, ideally would be just the element you want to have added to the molecule, right? For example, a catalyst might allow you to do that, where a stoichiometric reagent where you have to add a whole mole of it wouldn't do it. Uh, so, so and then 
OH activation for nucleophilic substitution. This is something we've talked about a lot. You make the OH, you protonate it, you make it into an acid chloride, you make it into a tosylate with a leaving group. But this is something that five of these industries still say is one of the most important things to develop a better way of activating OH for nucleus substitution. Reduction of amides, the carbonyl group in amides, without using hydrides. Uh, so they say lithium aluminum hydride, having a molecular weight of 38 and four hydrides per molecule, has the highest hydride density. So it's from the terms of atom economy, it's very good. Uh, it, but it co-generates an inorganic byproduct, which is difficult to separate from the product. And that makes this filtration slow. You lose product uh, when you're trying to filter it, get absorbed in this uh, extra junk that's being made. So they need something better than the available hydride reagents. Or to be able to do oxidation or epoxidation without using a chlorinated solvent. Four of them said that was a top priority. And they noticed in, in, in uh, connection with the um, oxidation that using the, the kinds of metals like chromium or osmium that we've talked about or, or uh, manganese, these have virtually been eliminated from pharmaceutical processes because small amounts of these metals can be injurious to the health. So the FDA requires that there be none in there. So better is to use oxidizing agents that don't involve such metals when you're making pharmaceuticals. Okay, then safer and more environmentally friendly Mitsunobu reactions. Now we're gonna talk about the Mitsunobu reaction next, but three said that was important, so it's worth knowing what the Mitsunobu reaction is if they think it's so important. Friedel-Crafts reactions on unactivated systems. We talked about uh, substituents that were activating or deactivating, right? But they'd like, they're not good ways, they say, of doing their Friedel-Crafts reactions on unactivated systems. At least two of them said that. And two of them said nitrations was a problem, not because the reaction's hard to do, but because of the danger of explosion with nitric acid, okay? And now, how about the new process?